Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God and also trust are well known in your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us. Because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. On April the 29th, 2015, the Baltimore Orioles played the Chicago White Sox at Camden Yards in Baltimore. This game was one of 162 that season. But this particular game set an unexpected record. For the first time in Major League Baseball history, a game was played before zero fans. No one attended the game. The fans were locked out. Violent riots that day in the city of Baltimore caused baseball officials to close the gates. The game was played to keep from having to make it up later in the year, but without any spectators. They did let the reporters in, and one of the reporters, he described a moment in the game. Chris Davis might have hit the quietest home run for the home team in Orioles history. The only muffled cheers came from a pocket of diehards locked out of Camden Yards. On this day, 30,000 Oriole fans were muted. The wild applause was silenced. There were no fans standing for a standing ovation, just Davis's teammates in the dugout coming over for high fives. Davis commented, when you're rounding the bases and the only cheers you hear are from outside the stadium, it's a weird feeling. I imagine it is, and this was the kind of feeling to which the Apostle Paul had become accustomed. Spiritually speaking, Paul hit home run after home run. This man preached to kings. He wrote the lion's share of the New Testament. He planted churches all over the Mediterranean world. Paul applied salvation by grace through faith in such a way that it changed the world. Yet seldom did anyone cheer for Paul when he rounded the bases. Oh, there may have been a few friends in the dugout giving him a high five when he walked in, but the only cheers came from outside the stadium, from heaven itself. No standing O's for Paul. No wild applause. The only cheers he heard were muffled and from a far, far distance. Yet amazingly, Paul didn't need the cheers of earthly fans or man's applause. He had a deeper motivation. In this morning's text, Paul talks about what compelled him, the fear of God, 
the love of Christ, and the way he saw people. These were the driving forces in his life. And this is the outline for our study this morning. We want to talk about the fear of God, the love of Christ, and how we see people. Paul begins in verse 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now Paul had just spoken of the judgment seat of Christ, or the Bema seat. Every Greco-Roman city had a Bema. In the Agora, or the marketplace, there was a decorated, a raised platform. It was where the local officials conducted town business. Awards were passed out. Court was held at the Bema. It was a place of reckoning, where people were held accountable for the good and the bad that they had done. And you remember, Paul had stood before the Bema there in Corinth. You can read about the incident in Acts chapter 18. Paul had been falsely accused, and he was shuffled before the regional magistrate. In the end, his case was dismissed. He was released. The frivolous charges were dropped. But Paul knew the tension, the fear, and the trepidation that comes when your destiny is no longer in your own hands, when your fate is being decided by another, when you're exposed and vulnerable to the speculations of a judge. Here he refers to it as a terror. It was a frightful, it was a fearful kind of thing. And it's an experience that you and I are going to undergo one day, for every Christian is one day going to stand before the Bema of Christ. In contrast to how Chris Davis felt about hitting a home run with no one in the stands, hey, when Paul served the Lord, I doubt if he ever noticed that the stadium was empty. I doubt that he ever cared that there were no fans in the stands, that no one cheered him or even booed him. For Paul cared about the judgment of one person. As the old saying goes, he played to an audience of one. Paul knew that one day he would be subject to the scrutiny of his Lord, and that was enough to preoccupy his concerns. Let me remind you that there is a difference between the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne of judgment. Unbelievers, not believers, are tried at the end of the age at God's great white throne. There the judgment is based on a person's deeds. And this will be disastrous for anyone who hopes they were good enough for God. I hope that's not you. The Bible warns us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. No one's performance is satisfactory. Everyone at God's great white throne is judged lacking and ends up cast into the lake of fire. People are saved by the work of Jesus, not their own works. This is why believers are spared God's great white throne, but we will all stand before the Bema of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 3, we're taught that it's our service that will be tried, that will be tested at the judgment seat of Christ. We will see, as Paul says, of what sort it is. In other words, our motivations will be inspected. Did we serve the Lord sincerely, joyfully, gratefully, or did we serve Him from selfish motivation? Everyone who stands before the Bema is assured of heaven. It's the reward for their service that hangs in the balance. And I got to say, that alone is enough to create some sweaty palms, some trembling knees. Terror is still an appropriate word. 
Not that we'll fear hell for ourselves, but we'll fear that we fell short of keeping other people from going there. Trust me, that will be frightful enough. Well, Paul lived under the realization that he would be held accountable by Jesus for the grace he'd received, for the truth he'd been shown. He didn't need the applause of man to take seriously his calling from God. And so he did all he could to persuade men. Notice this word he uses, persuade. When Paul preached, he wasn't making a suggestion. He wasn't merely offering an opinion. We got enough of those, don't we? He wasn't content for you to walk away from hearing him thinking, oh, that was interesting, or oh boy, we were entertained this morning. That wasn't his goal. No, Paul tried to be persuasive. He wanted to wrestle your mind from the previous position and force it to draw a new conclusion. Paul called men to repent. You know, the Greeks were the ancient philosophers. They were used to intellectual sparring and this kind of philosophical debate. They weren't afraid to challenge someone's worldview. And this is the approach that we need when we share our faith. The goal is not just to inform someone else or to entertain them or make that person feel good. It's to persuade them to come to bring their lives under the authority of our Lord Jesus. Well, Paul's intent was to persuade men. But he hoped that he didn't have to persuade the Corinthians. And he certainly knew that he didn't have to convince God. He says in verse 11, But we are all well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. In the marketplace, in the public square, Paul was aware that he needed to prove his character. You know, to win the minds of people, you first have to win the right to be heard. And you can't do that unless you conduct yourself and your ministry with integrity. Paul knew that there were no free passes among the heathen. Respect had to be earned. And this is a lesson for us. I mean, don't ever resent it when the people you're trying to reach hold you at arm's length until they first prove that you can be trusted. The world has every right to scrutinize our integrity. But not so with God and with his people. And this is what Paul knew. Paul knew that as far as God was concerned, he didn't have to prove himself. He'd been honest with God. He'd admitted his mistakes. And even if he wasn't, there's no hiding anything from God. No, the Lord had shown his servant grace. God knew Paul's flaws, but he also saw the apostle's sincerity. And Paul hoped that he had earned the trust of the Corinthians. He had spent time with them. They knew him. He knew them. He had certainly done enough to prove to them his sincerity and his love for the truth. Both God and the Corinthians knew Paul's heart. And so he writes, For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. Paul had proven the legitimacy of his ministry by the motivation of his heart. Whereas there were critics there in Corinth who relied on appearance. They expected to be respected as a pastor simply because they looked apart. They were all about the right persona and image. In contrast to Paul, their boast was in appearance, not in heart. You know, I know pastors today who go to great effort to appear sincere, 
Oh, they dress and talk and act like they think a pastor is supposed to dress and talk and act. They got their business cards. They got their certificates of ordination. They got all the pastoral trappings. But where are the scars? Have they laid down their lives for the church? Show me their faithfulness and their commitment. There's more to being a minister than just appearance. Paul didn't worry about looking sincere in the eyes of people. He was all about being sincere before God. In fact, when it comes to appearance, the Apostle Paul didn't really have much to brag about. You remember shortly after his conversion, Paul escaped persecution in Damascus by being lured from the wall in a basket. Apparently, he wasn't a big guy if he fit in a basket. Had to have been a pretty small guy. There's actually a third century novel. It's called The Acts of Paul and Thecla that gives us a written description of Paul. It's kind of interesting. It says, he was small in size with meeting eyebrows, with a rather large nose, ball-headed, bow-legged, strongly built, full of grace. Rather than tall, dark, and handsome, Paul was short and stocky. He had Jewish features. He had a big snout. He had this caterpillar crawling across his face. He called it an eyebrow. He was bald. He looked like he'd been riding bareback for several days. Bow-legged. Add to that Paul's eye condition. You know it. His eyes were often infected and bulging with pus. If sunglasses had existed, he would have hit them behind some Ray-Bans. I'm sure his body was tired and gnarled. He'd been tattooed with the scars from his beatings and his stoning. As they say, Paul had the perfect face for radio. Hey, the apostle would have never made the cover of GQ magazine. But all this made him a walking lesson that in ministry, it is heart, not appearance, that really matters. And yet Corinthian, the Corinthians' false teachers, Paul's critics there in Corinth, they were just the opposite. To them, appearance was everything. These guys look like FCA leaders. The big men on campus, muscular, rugged, good-looking types. The jocks. These were people who tried hard to be cool. These were the Christian hipsters. Tall on appearance, but short on substance. These were the preachers that wore designer jeans and got tatted up, put product in their hair. These guys were more about marketing than about ministering. They had a lot of hype, but little holiness. Hey, I'm not against being fashionable and relevant and trying to reach the culture, but Paul was proof that the greatest determinator of a pastor's success is not the labels in his wardrobe, but the longings in his heart. You remember God's calling on David? The Lord sent Samuel to the house of Jesse to choose a new king. Jesse had seven sons. I'm talking strapping, good-looking, strong young men. And they all passed before Samuel. But six times the verdict was the same. Neither has the Lord chosen this one. That is until number seven walked in. He was the little guy. He was the run of the litter. And he'd been out in the fields tending the sheep. I bet he reeked. But the Lord spoke to Samuel, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. 
Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Reminds me of the sports section in the newspaper before a big game. I'm not sure they still do it. But it used to be that on the Friday before the Georgia-Florida game, the AJC experts, they would compare the strengths and weaknesses of both teams and then they would pick a winner. What they would do is they put two columns in the newspaper, one for the dogs, one for the gators. And then they'd analyze the rushing game, the passing game, the defense, the special teams, the coaching. The team that got the edge in that area would get a check mark in their box. Well, you add up all the check marks, and the team with the most was declared the prognosticator's pick. But the last category in the newspaper's list was by far the most important. For after the rushing and the passing and the defense and the special teams and the coaching, the sports writers added a final category. They analyzed the intangibles. And this is always the trickiest. This is the most subjective evaluation to make. The intangibles are the ingredients not seen with the naked eye. The subsurface traits. These are the components that don't show up on the stat sheet. Every football fan knows, though, that it is the heart of the team. It is the intangibles. It's their grit. It's their determination that is often most vital. And so it is in serving the Lord. It doesn't matter how you look or you speak or your posture. If you're sincere and if you're pure in heart, the Lord can and will use you mightily. God's criteria is different from ours. As Samuel was told, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. When the Corinthians evaluated a ministry, they looked at the paint job, and they never bothered to peek under the hood. Corinth emphasized image and sophistication, which meant if Paul ever acted a little crazy, if ever did something that didn't cater to the proper protocols, then it just further alienated them from this church. He says in verse 13, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. This phrase, beside ourselves, means off our rocker. Or as we might say, a couple of fries short of a Happy Meal. Or even nuts. At times, Paul's obedience to God made him him appear crazy to the people around him. And if you've never had this experience, trust me, follow the Lord long enough and you will. Out of the blue, God's Spirit will prompt you to speak to a stranger or go to a place for no particular reason or make a phone call to someone you haven't spoken to in years. To obey, you have to battle thoughts like, this is crazy. What am I doing? This makes no sense. And it especially stings when other people think the same. But here is the beauty of obedience. What starts out looking and feeling crazy often ends up with God working a miracle. That stranger you talk to embraces Christ. 
The unplanned place that you were told to go becomes the site of a divine appointment. That random phone call is received in the nick of time. Hey, Paul had enough of these experiences that he concludes, if you think we're crazy, it's for God. You know, at times, obedience caused Paul, obedience to God caused Paul to do the crazy thing. At other times, obedience to God led him to take the sound, solid, stable course of action. It worked both ways. This is why he says, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. Paul was willing to do the crazy or the common sense if it could help the Corinthians. Either way, Paul didn't take his opinion, didn't take an opinion poll before he decided to act. Paul never strategized decisions to be politically correct. Paul's sole motivation was to obey Jesus. In the end, he didn't really give a rip about what other people thought of him. It wasn't about protecting his image. It was about pointing people to Jesus and bringing glory to God. Is your life about the same? For Paul says in verse 14, the love of Christ compels us. All that Paul endured, every rigor demanded of him, every road this man was called to travel, he did so because he was overtaken by the love of Jesus Christ. The love of Christ held him in his grip. As John wrote, we love him because he first loved us. Love is devotion's catalyst. You know, here in chapter 5, Paul mentions three motivations for serving Jesus. Earlier, he mentioned rewards. We've talked this morning, he mentioned fear. And he also mentioned love. And of these three, though they're all powerful... Without a doubt, the highest and holiest incentive for serving Jesus is love. Knowing in your heart of hearts that Jesus loves you. This is what prompts a person to want to love him in return. That Jesus, the Lord of glory, died to save you. That he rose to live in you. That he's coming for you. In the meantime, he promises to live with you. This is what captivates and dominates a human heart. This great love causes a person to go anywhere, to do anything for Jesus' sake. A person motivated by the love of Christ is like the ever-ready bunny. He just keeps going and going and going. If your tank is full of love, you'll never run out of gas. Paul speaks of Christ's love. Because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. Now, here's a biblical truth about our salvation. When Jesus died, we died with him. Our sin nature was crucified with Christ. Think of it this way. Think of it like copy and paste. Your computer allows you to copy from one document and paste it into another. And God also can copy and paste. Spiritually, he copied you. That's actually Matt. <laughs> he copied Matt living here in the 21st century, and he pasted Matt on the cross alongside Jesus in the first century. Matt now shares in all that Jesus has accomplished. And if you're in Christ, you share in the same. When Jesus died, the sinful you died with him. 
Romans 6 verse 6 tells us, our old man was crucified with Christ. But why did Jesus die? He tells us that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. We died with Jesus in order to live with and for Jesus. We died to our old desires and lusts to rise up with Jesus and to enjoy a brand new life. In Christ, every Christian has a new identity, a new nature, a new disposition, a new love, a new purpose, even a new power. And God figures the least we can do is to embrace this new life and celebrate it to the fullest. This is why Paul says in verse 16, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Now here's a verse with profound implications. In fact, you understand verse 16 and it will revolutionize how you see yourself and how you see other people. Paul uses Jesus as an example. On earth, the disciples knew him as a man. They related to him physically. They rubbed shoulders. They shook hands. From time to time, I gave big bear hugs to each other, I'm sure. Several years ago, Popular Mechanics published a picture of what a first century Jew probably looked like. Maybe not your impression of what you thought Jesus might have looked like. If you think Jesus was a red-headed Irishman or even a dark-skinned African, think again. Jesus was Jewish. But see, here's the deal. Here's what Paul says. Now that Jesus has ascended to heaven, it really doesn't matter what he looked like. For today, we relate to Jesus spiritually. Don't get caught up in all that other stuff. The fact he was human is theologically important, but the specifics, his height, his weight, his skin color, etc., that's irrelevant. It's no longer vital. This is why God didn't provide us photos or portraits of Jesus. They would only get in the way of us knowing him now. Today, we relate to Jesus spiritually, not physically. And this is the way God wants us to view one another. Since we're in Christ, alive spiritually, why focus any longer on the physical, outward person? Why not look beneath the surface when we evaluate others? As best we can, God wants us to look beyond our outward appearance and relate to each other and to ourselves spiritually. The first way to apply this principle is personally. Why get bummed out about your appearance? It's been said, mirrors show us what we look like, not who we are. The real you isn't the outer person. It's the person of the heart. As we discussed earlier in chapter 5, our body is just a tent. It's temporary housing. This outer shell is going to crack in weather. In fact, a Christian is like a pecan. Man, you're more than just the shell. Actually, you've got to crack the shell to get to the nut. The real you is the nut inside. Didn't you know that? Literally, in God's eyes, I am a tasty, delicious nut. Many of you knew that. (laughs) Years ago, I ran across a quote by supermodel Carol Mallory. 
She stated, Everywhere I went, my figure followed. But I learned I am not my figure. I'm so glad since I've learned that that I'm not my figure. (laughs) So reassuring. Hey, but you know what? She learned not to let her appearance define her. We need to learn that. Your looks are not you. Your personhood involves more than how fit you are or how skinny you are or how athletic you are. The real person is who you are deep down inside. You are what you are spiritually. Guys, the next time you see a supermodel or just a pretty girl, remember, you're not looking at that girl. The real person is underneath the wrapping paper. As a matter of fact, give it time, and that wrapping paper is going to wilt and sag and lose some of its luster. In one of author Conan Doyle's novels, Sherlock Holmes is stated saying this, The most attractive woman I ever knew was hanged for poisoning three little children for their insurance money. So much for outward beauty. And yet we as humans are attracted to appearance, are we not? It's one of our flaws. I read of a woman who posted a fake profile, a dating profile on an internet dating site. The profile photo was of a friend, a professional model. Despite the pretty picture, this woman tried to paint herself just as disgusting and revolting a person as possible. Here's her, some lines from her self-summary. She said, I enjoy kicking cups out of homeless people's hands. I tell my parents I'm in law school so they'll continue to pay my bills. I do me. If you can't handle me at my worst, you don't deserve me at my best. I mean, the obnoxious confessions just rolled on and on. Well, guess what? The fake profile got 150 messages in the first 24 hours. In the two weeks the profile was online, 1,000 men sent this woman messages. It was the lure of appearance that drew these men to a woman that if they really connected with would ruin their lives. This is why this morning's passage is so important. It teaches us that appearance can be deceptive. That flashy pastor, he might be a disaster. That pretty girl might really be an ugly person. Appearances don't reveal the real person. We need to learn to see ourselves and others for who they are spiritually. So if you're overweight, keep working your plan. Try to lose those pounds. If you got a beard, man, trim it every now and then. We'll all appreciate it. I'm not saying we should ignore these things, but let's just not get caught up in them. Certainly, let's not get bummed out about them. The real you, the inner you, is a new you. You've been transformed in Christ. You're being fitted for God's kingdom. God loves you. Your body is just a pup tent that one day you'll trade in for a glorious mansion. For in verse 17, Paul writes triumphantly, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Realize, Christians 
are a new species of creature that prior to the first century had never roamed planet Earth. You might know people who believe aliens are coming to our planet. Well, they're actually already here. We are the aliens. This world is not our home. We're new creations. If you're in Christ, you are a new creation. Yet some of you might ask, wait a minute, Sandy. In what ways have old things passed away and have all things become new? I'd really like to know because when I go home, I'm going to walk into the same old house. I'm going to see that same old husband. I'm going to have those same old kids. I'm going to have my same old problems. What's passed away now? What's become new? You know, if you looked at me and my circumstances on the outside, there really wasn't a lot of difference to me the day after I was saved than the day before I was saved. There was a smile on my face. There was a bounce on my, in my step. But I was the same weight, same height, same eye color, etc., etc. It was inwardly, spiritually, where the transformation took place. God put his Holy Spirit into my hollow spirit. And that set off a whole avalanche of changes. The Old Testament talks about the transformation that occurs in the believers in the following terms. God takes out our heart of stone and he replaces it with a heart of flesh. Something soft, tender. Before I embraced Jesus, I was hard-headed and hard-hearted, stubborn and stuck in my ways. I was a tough nut to crack. But Jesus changed me. He took that calloused heart and he made it as soft as a baby's behind. A transplant occurred in me. God's Spirit took out that heart of stone and replaced it with a loving and sensitive and pliable and even teachable heart. And he's done the same in you if you know Christ. When we embrace Jesus, we instantly become alive to God. His love, His nature floods over us. He changes our tendencies. He made us compliant, whereas before we were defiant. He fills our heart with love. I now love God and I love other people, even people I never loved before. I know Jesus delivers people from drugs and alcohol and the like. And sometimes he does it instantly. And we hear these testimonies, it's amazing. But there was a time early in my life when racial prejudice darkened my world. I don't blame it on being a southerner. I blame it on being a sinner. Racism is not about skin. It's about sin. But at 20 years old, Jesus saved me. And the very moment he did, my attitude toward people changed. A light shined into my darkness. I suddenly loved you because Jesus loved you, regardless of your flesh tones. My hard heart became a soft heart. You see, verse 16 is just the first step. We need to look past the flesh. We need to look past the color. We need to see each other spiritually. The problem in America today isn't a lack of racial sensitivity. There is a hyper-awareness and sensitivity in our society. We are constantly encouraging white people to stop hating black people and black people to stop hating white people. But you know where this has gotten us? Now people just hate everybody equally. It takes more than that. 
We need the love of Jesus to fill our hearts. We need a love from outside of ourselves to invade us. We need to humble ourselves and admit our self-centeredness and let God's love overwhelm our prejudices and make us new creations in Christ. That's what we need. And Jesus can do that. He'll reach deep down inside of you and he'll turn your outlook topsy-turvy. A new creation has new instincts, new impulses, Old stuff no longer matters. How we do work and friendships and pastimes and hobbies and music and parenting and marriage and even race, it gets transformed. In Christ, all things really do become new. I love telling Carrie's story. And I called Carrie yesterday. We texted and I made sure I got her permission before telling her story again this morning. Carrie's maiden name is Goldsmith. You know her as Jaeger. When Carrie first started coming to our church many years ago now, she had given her life to Jesus. She had just left the party scene. She'd given it all up for her new life in Christ. And she was committed, a committed Christian. Carrie was growing spiritually. She was growing by leaps and bounds. That is, until a former boyfriend resurfaced. He was a slick guy, remember him. He cruised into her life, and she was tempted by his money, by his charm. One night, she said she came to a crossroads. She refused to be a hypocrite. She had to choose one or the other, the boyfriend or Jesus. So she got in her car, and she started driving. She was deep in thought as she drove. She said she drove by our church in Stone Mountain down to the old cemetery on the edge of town. To this day, she doesn't know why she went to a creepy cemetery. But as soon as she pulled in, the headlights of her car hit a tombstone. And engraved on that tombstone was a last name, Goldsmith. And she said it was as if God was shouting from heaven, The old has passed away. You are a new creation in Christ. And she was. From that day forward, she's lived like it. That was a turning point for Carrie. Her life has never been the same. And if you're in Christ, you too are a new creation. So live like it. Put aside the old life. Begin to celebrate the new. We're all new creations in Christ. Hallelujah. Hope Jaron is a scientist who loves to write about plants. And she says a plant's survival is dependent on it sinking its roots. She says a plant can't survive without roots. And the same is true for a human. You know, we all sink roots. We choose an identity. Then we link our identity to a destiny. Then we develop an affinity to certain tastes and types that support that identity. We get rooted into a lifestyle. We either take root in Christ or we take root in this world. But listen to how Dr. Jaron describes a seed when it starts to put down roots into the soil. She writes, No risk is more terrifying than that taken by the first root. Once the first root is extended, the plant will never again enjoy any hope of relocating to a place less cold, less dry, less dangerous. Indeed, it will face frost and drought without any possibility of flight. 
Taking root is a gamble. But if the seed takes root, it can go down 12, 30, 40 meters. The results are powerful. The tree's roots can swell and split bedrock and move gallons of water daily for years, much more efficiently than any pump yet invented by man. If the seed takes root, then the plant becomes all but indestructible. And this describes the choices that a Christian makes. In the beginning, sinking roots into a new life in Christ is a gamble. You're thinking, if I sink my roots in Christ, will I be limiting myself? Will there be things that I'll have to give up? Will I be reducing my options? And the answer to that is, yes, you will. It's all true. This is why sinking roots requires faith. But if you trust the Lord, and if you sink your roots deep into Christ, the results are truly powerful. For you tap into a spring of joy and satisfaction and power that will never dry up. This is what produces indestructible peace in our lives. Let me be honest. My goal today is to change your mind. I am out to persuade you that Jesus is a better way. He is. So here's my final question. Will you stay rooted in the lusts and in the deceptiveness of this world? Or will you begin to take root in Christ and learn to see your life through Him?